0: G'day everyone, welcome to your favourite podcast that is Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host Tiffany Cook, always a pleasure to be here with you and even more of a pleasure today because I'm speaking to Dean Yates. Dean Yates is a journalist, a workplace mental health consultant, an author and a public speaker and we are diving into a deep conversation about all things mental health, PTSD, healing and generally doing better, doing better for our first responder community and in our workplaces in general. So I hope you enjoy the show and if you do, go and give us a great five-star rating and review via your Apple Podcast app, follow the Facebook page for the Code 9 Foundation and we would love you to wrap your arms around us and we can wrap our arms around those who need us. Dean Yates, welcome to Conversations with Code 9.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Tiffany.
0: I've heard some good things about you, lad.
1: That's very good to hear. I, I've uh, I got a bit of an association with Code Nine. It goes back to my uh, days at Ward Seventeen, the uh, the psych ward in Melbourne that uh, treats a lot of coppers, ambos, fireys, and uh, Code Nine does some amazing work with first responders in Victoria and and uh, their families.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that. I first I met. Um... Mark, mm. this will test me. This will test me. How did I actually stumble across Mark? Anyway, in the early days of this podcast, because I did quite a few, I was working with Ambulance Victoria when I first started the podcast. Okay. And I took a, a real keen interest in, I had this this crossover between, I'd started the podcast and liked to learn about, you know, people and life and psychology and mental and physical fitness and how it all intersects at the same time that year i was studying epigenetics so understanding people's personal biologies and how the difference in that uh creates a difference in our not only our bodies and our and our physical makeup but also our behaviors so i got really curious around the what was lee what was causing what I was seeing in the mental health of the mental health decline and and suicide rates in first responders, and I was curious about the nature versus nurture ness of their career choice. Mm-hmm. So I think I you know I was quite prolific in how many episodes I had police officers and paramedics and you know all kinds of first responders to speak to. Um, well, we, and, we yeah. need
1: we need to hear their stories. I think it's absolutely oh. vital that. Australians understand their stories better that they understand the sort of work that they do and also that the to- and the toll that it takes on them because I don't think there's a good enough understanding of that and that gets reflected in the treatment of their mental health struggles because too often these guys these these brave individuals the men and women in uniform who are protecting us and looking after us are often uh, abandoned by their first responder organisations left to fend for themselves against an evil workers' compensation system that makes their mental health worse. And often they have very little chance of full recovery. And I think that's an absolute scandal.
0: Mm. It almost feels like there's this mask, there's this perception that is built around their career and what they do that almost they fall into. And what I mean by that is, When I started boxing, I realised at 29, I'd gotten around my whole life wearing this mask, this facade of, this is me, I'm strong, I'm independent, I'm this, I'm that, all these traits I had, I'd wrapped this story around the fact that they were strengths, and then that I just had them for no reason, and I feel like society looks at first responders, and they're strong, and they save people, and they do this, and they're just stoic, and it's like almost a conditioning that makes you more like that because you're playing a role then
1: yeah it makes it I think it makes it very hard for first responders to put their hands up and seek help right because the the society does see them as strong people strong individuals who are almost who are almost impervious to being hurt in a way because they wear that uniform and that's what they do that's what they it's not a job for them it's a it's a vocation it's a calling Mm -hmm. and they answer that call day after day and and having spent i've had three admissions to this psych ward in in melbourne spent 77 days and nights there and i've gotten to know a lot of coppers very well and they, they they've told me that once they have been diagnosed with ptsd for example for them to be told that they have to give up their service revolver, for example, that they can no longer um, be a, a, an operational officer, They use those words, an operational officer of Victoria Police is a huge blow to their identity, it, it shakes them to their core. Because that's who they that's who they were, and they love their job. And, and so you can, you can understand why then it's very hard for these folks to actually put their hand up and, and get help because it means so much to them what they do. And, and that's why I don't think society understands the depth of the challenge uh, for, for first responders to actually to get the help they need and then to make that recovery because we see them as so strong. And yes, they're strong, but they're also human beings. Mm. And unless we've actually walked in their shoes... I mean, I'm, I'm an old journalist, you're a boxer, we've all had different careers and lives, but unless we've actually walked in those shoes, we don't really know what it's like.
0: A hundred percent. Can you tell me, uh, give us all a bit of a brief overview on you and your background?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was a journalist, I guess I'm still a journalist, but for 25, 30 years or so, and most of it was overseas, working in uh, Asia, Middle East, and uh I ended up covering a lot of uh, covering a lot of very traumatic stories. So the Bali bombings, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know we just had the twentieth anniversary of the bomb attacks, which everyone's aware of. Uh, I covered the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia's Aceh province. In that small part of Indonesia alone, where the tsunami hit in uh, two thousand and four, uh, final death toll one hundred and sixty five thousand people.
0: Oh wow!
1: Uh, I was up there for a month. Uh, I went back after six months. Went back again twelve months later to just check, do reports on the recovery and how people are trying to build their lives. I also spent a lot of time in Iraq uh, during the Iraq War, uh, 2003 and 2004. And then I went back, the start of 2007, as the Bureau Chief for Reuters the International News Service. I was there for nearly two years. It was during that time that uh, three of my staff were actually killed in the space of two days. Uh, oh, and Dean. Two of those men were Iraqis who were killed by a US Apache gunship in an attack that was, of course, is now famous, infamous, because the footage of that attack was published by Julian Assange in 2010, the videotape, which he famously called collateral murder, Uh. uh, and um, for which he's one of the reasons he's been persecuted by the United States government. But uh, so, yeah. So for those reasons, I I have always felt a real affinity with veterans and first responders because staff were killed on my watch. And I, I I really think I I really feel what they feel like. Those folks who send people out into danger, whether they're soldiers or first responders, uh I, I know what I know what it's like to lose staff. And that was the reason I ended up in Ward 17, that's like Ward, in the first place, 10 years after that event. So for me, a lot of journalists cover a lot of trauma, a lot of traumatic stories. Um, I just kept mine down for a long, long time. Uh, like a lot of people do just suppressed it work hard. You try not to think about it. But I think everyone uh, has their has their limits. And I reach mine and then all those typical PTSD symptoms rose to the surface and uh, in the end, uh, I had to uh, I had to get admitted.
0: Wow. One thing, as you were saying that, that popped into my head for the first time, and I've done quite a few episodes on both of these topics and never thought to explore the relationship between them, but grief and PTSD.
1: Yeah. Like,
0: I wonder how messy that Loss.
1: gets. Loss. Yeah. Yeah. Loss. So, and it's, it's a, it's an interesting concept. I actually, what I talk about is not so much loss, but I use this concept called moral injury. I'm not sure if you've come across this before. It, it's a bit like loss, but in, in the, in the, I, I, I talk about moral injury because it's, it affected me because it's, it refers to, it's, it's a wound to the soul. It's the depth of, it's when, it's when something, shatters your moral foundation and in my case staff who worked for me were killed in horrific circumstances and i felt a sense of responsibility over their deaths and that caused a moral injury for myself and so the the sort of the 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 definition of moral injury is where you are responsible for something or you fail to do something and something bad happens or you witness something horrific and as a result you end up with a condition that is effectively quite similar to ptsd very similar symptoms to ptsd and it's if you look at a lot of veterans who have returned from iraq and afghanistan what troubles these what troubles these folks especially the ones who've been in combat it's not it's not the fear it's not it's not the firefighting it's not the combat that affects them it's the killing right it's the lives they took it might be the lives of innocent civilians that they took or it's the buddies they lost or that they couldn't save that affects them. And when they have to come back home, they are burdened with this moral injury. And that is it's that sort of moral dimension of trauma, which I don't think a lot of people truly understand. And this was how I first came to meet the folks at Code 9 was Mark invited me to come and give a talk to the, some coppers at Code 9. We're going back to 2017 here, so more than five years ago. And I spoke to a group of uh, coppers about moral injury and my understanding of moral injury. And there were coppers there. There were detectives. There were uh, highway patrol coppers. There were folks who did the triple triple zero calls, right? And i got to say, a lot of them got this concept of moral injury. Mm. It really resonated with them and i remember there was one one bloke there who was like had done the dispatch for years and he said the worst thing for him was no not knowing what was happening to the folks that he was sending off to a call not knowing if he was sending them into a situation where they could be hurt uh i know another copper spoke to me about how he got to a domestic violence situation too late one day and he was deeply deeply troubled by that and so th- these are, these are, this is a concept, this moral injury that I think can help people, especially first responders understand why they might be feeling a particular way about the experiences that they have had on the job. Oh, Sorry to uh, throw all that at you. No, Tiffany, I, but
0: No, it's, it's, it's profound, you know, hearing it explained that way. Um, and there's so much clarity in it. I just keep, you know, I, I was thinking about the idea of shame and what a t- tumultuous, uh, toxic emotion it is. And this is this is what... So you,
1: you've nailed it there. Moral injury and shame go hand in hand, right? Mm. Because it's the shame that drives someone into the depths of moral injury because a person will feel, right, that if they... If they fail to do something and you can think of all the sorts of scenarios right when we're talking about first responders or and and if they fail to do something or and then they feel that shame as an individual and that affects their identity their sense of worth their sense as a person and we all know that shame can be a very destructive emotion
2: mm. uh
1: and and so with with the traditional idea of ptsd you've got your symptomology which focuses a lot on the arousal symptoms, the hypervigilance, the the nightmares, the flashbacks, all that sort of stuff. With moral injury, your key symptoms: is shame and guilt and rage.
0: Mm. Mm. Far out, Dean. You've almost got me speechless, and that never happens. No, no, that's <laughs> right.
1: And look, I've actually so no, no, and so I've actually written a book, and I've got a book coming out in the middle of next year, which is being published by Pam Macmillan and Moral Injury. Is a key undercurrent it's a key theme of this whole book because i want people to understand the moral dimension of trauma because i don't think a lot of people are getting the treatment that they need that's not to say that anyone out there who's gone through some sort of trauma needs to go to their clinician and say hey i've got moral injury but what i'm trying to get across to people is that ptsd i think for some people could be quite a limiting diagnosis mm. And that you've got to look at the you've got to look at the moral component of what people have gone through when it comes to their trauma, yeah. because the other thing about moral injury is that in some cases, the that person there might be some culpability there, right? There might be something that someone has actually failed to do. And in my case, when it came to the deaths of my staff, there were some measures that I I should have taken, I could have taken to protect them, and I didn't, right? So I had a, I had to I had to wear some responsibility for their deaths. People would say to me, ah it was war, bloody hell, it was Iraq. No, I had to wear some responsibility for that. And and bearing some responsibility for that was part of my healing process. Mm. So that's another idea that's central to moral injury recovery, is for an individual to accept an element, at least an element, of that responsibility and and that that helps that recovery process and this is where you'll find when you look into moral injury you'll find that you will see chaplains involved in uh you'll find spiritual care workers often involved in this recovery process because they are they're traditional healers in this sense right they're they're looking for ways to help people move forward one of the problems i find with uh traditional approach to PTSD is that when a when a trauma happens some clinicians will look at it and say to someone that wasn't your fault what happened wasn't your fault but what if it was what if there was something there that someone did and they feel a sense of responsibility about that act even if you could argue and say well really are you being realistic people feel the way they feel and Mm -hmm. And this is where I think moral injury is really can be very, very. I, I like it because it allows a person to feel the way they feel. Yes. Sometimes, you know, this is the problems with one of the problems with cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is you've got clinicians pushing this idea that it's negative thinking, it's erroneous thinking, it's the wrong way of thinking. Let's, if someone feels the way they feel, let them, because there's obviously an element of truth to that.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And it. And it. For me, it's more about being able to influence how they think about this. And you know, like Dean, you're you're saying that there were. You you reflect now and think there were measures I could have taken. Yes. But when you think back to the moment beforehand, was there an? Was there not an intention of knowing that you you'd done enough and? Like, did you knowingly say, oh, "I could do that, but I won't worry about it, or I no, don't it didn't really occur to care"? Me. Exactly. Exactly. To me. Right. So, it, so it's just this thinking of it. It actually couldn't have been another way. It didn't come from a place of I don't care about these people. Correct. So, I think people need to have some self compassion and go like humans make mistakes. I remember, oh, I got goosebumps just then thinking about this. You know, mm. I think it was um, Darren Hodge when I spoke to him the Micah paramedic and I said, talk to me about failure because, you know, in every other career or most of them, the vast majority or education or sport, in my case, if you don't push for, for failure, if you're not aiming to fail, then you're not aiming for potential. But when a paramedic, a Micah flight paramedic is is pushing themselves to failure, somebody dies. Correct, And it's... Like what a paradox. What a crazy what a crazy place to have to exercise. And I think what we
1: have to I think what we have to understand in these situations when say paramedics you talk to a paramedic and they say I failed. It's it's human instinct to say back to that person, you did everything you could. Mm-hmm. Don't blame yourself. Whereas I think the response should be, tell me how you failed.
0: Yes. Explain
1: to me how you fail. Right. Let that, that's tough, right? It, 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 that's hard for the listener, but that's, I think, what you've got to do because otherwise you are just saying to that person, come on, just move on. And it's clear that that person doesn't want to move on. They feel a sense of they're burdened by what happened. And I think self compassion and you know you 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 hit it on the head there self compassion right it took me a long many many years to feel any self compassion it was only after i did a lot of work yes and a lot of a lot of rumination positive rumination and exploration and therapy that i was able to feel that have that self compassion and i think that's it so it's important to go through that that sort of stage of of letting people tell their stories and and actually opening a way for them to be self critical and and to explore all the the twists and turns of of what could have happened and what their role in that might have might might be that opens the way in my view for for eventual healing and self compassion.
0: Yeah, I think allowing people to be curious. Like Mm. you said, understand what they feel, be curious, but also speaking it. I remember um, a session with my therapist once where he explained to me the universal, the first universal law of psychotherapy was you believe what you hear yourself speak. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, righto. Anyway, in that same conversation later on, he he asked me about, you know, he asked me a question. And when I went to answer it, As the words went to come out, they wouldn't. And I went and it floored me. And I said, until I had to say that, I believed that it was not my fault because intellectually, because logically Mm. I can understand. Here's this scenario. Here's a child. Here's a decision, not her fault. I went to say it and part of me went, it is your fault. Be ashamed. Mm. And so to allow, like you said, to ask people a question and allow them because... They'll come to the right conclusion or or different perspectives in the middle of that conversation, but you can't just tell them. You can't yeah, tell exactly. Them, you know? Exactly. It doesn't do anything. Yeah. And they don't get that same visceral – I had a visceral response I'd never had before and went, oh, yeah. oh, I don't believe what I think I believe.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Human condition is complex.
1: Yeah. And I think we're conditioned as well to just – we're conditioned to feel uncomfortable about other people's stories, right? And we don't want to, mm. we don't want to sort of get in the ditch with them because that's going to make us feel uncomfortable. And yet, um, if we can just make that extra bit of effort to allow people to share, then it can just make. I, I think we can help a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah. These are conversations we need to have because they're. You know, when we don't have them, they sound, it sounds so odd, but it's not until you think about it and you go, yeah, why do we feel that way when someone is in a place of being distressed and and needs to just be hit? Like, we just want to get out.
1: Mm. We don't want to have a conversation. And look look at first responders, for example, right? How, I don't think many, I think very few Australians understand what it is they go through every day. Unless you know, unless you've got a, family member who's a first responder or a loved one, you don't really understand mm-hmm. what it's like to be, it's a front line. It is a front line. And the pressure and the stress that those folks are under is enormous. And so I, I just think, you know, we we need to give them more ways to share their stories and, and tell their stories. So the community understands more about, what it is and how and how we can support them more and and enable their organizations to look after them better as well. I just think that's so important.
0: Yeah, yeah. What in your experience, you know, in Ward 17 and, and those times when you went into care, mm. what was what was helpful and what was done really well or what worked for you in those instances?
1: Well look, Ward seventeen was a was a turning point in my life. So I, I went into Ward 17 because I was suicidal. I mean, that's how low I was. Yep. Articism, how hard was it for
0: you to reach out and first tell someone that you were suicidal? Uh,
1: it was uh, actually, strangely enough, perhaps, I, I just told my wife uh, that I was. This was mid-2016, here in rural Tasmania where I live. Um, oh,
0: Tassie, I'm from Tassie.
1: You're kidding, whereabouts?
0: Uh northwest Coast, Devonport. Uh,
1: kid, ke- my wife grew up in Devonport. Oh, I bet the, so I bet your family. I bet, yeah, I'll, I'll tell her about this later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we live in Evandale now. Oh, uh, which is great.
0: There's a great uh, bakery village.
1: there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, Ingleside Bakery. Yes. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we uh, look. I, I'd been sick for a while, uh, but then I just hit a low point one night and was you know considering suicide and I just told I told Mary uh I just I I don't know why I did but I did but I'm glad I did because she just said right you need help and you know in a very loving way very comforting way she said we need to get you to the mainland because Tassie not having great facilities of course uh was not going to be able to 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 give me this sort of um, specialist care that I needed given my work background. Yeah. Can uh, I?
0: Sorry to keep interrupting. Hmm. Can I ask if you don't mind sharing, hmm. curious about what that experience felt like for you, you know, how, what What were the thoughts that came in? Was there feelings associated and how long did it kind of linger? Like what's it like to, uh, to land in that place?
1: I was so numb, Tiffany, to be honest. I was completely emotionally numb at that time. Uh and for me, yeah, I mean, the whole concept of taking my own life was really one of just trying to find peace. My, my war, my mind was at war with itself. I was uh, just, yeah. Uh, I was, I'd been, I was absolutely tortured with guilt and shame over the deaths of my staff. I, the responsibility I felt, the fact that I had let down them, their families and, uh, And I felt I was an absolute burden to my family. Uh, I was a terrible person to live with. Uh, I was drinking heavily. And what I I discovered was that it wasn't about so much wanting to die. It was just wanting to find peace. Mm. And just to still the madness in my head, in my brain, that was making life unbearable. I didn't see a future. And I and I think that's something that you hear people who have been suicidal talk about, wanting to find peace. And that was the word that just kept coming back to me again and again. I just want peace. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, Mary uh, helped me get admitted to Ward 17, where I just had the most amazing experience there from the moment I walked in. Uh, it was just a place where... Everyone in there has got PTSD, right? Yeah. Uh, veterans, coppers. And I was welcome from the moment I went in. Uh, I had a psychiatrist, a social worker, nurses, uh, room to myself, super quiet. And, and I just felt safe as soon as I went in there. It's not a lockdown facility, but you have to sign in or out if you want to go somewhere, go for a walk, that type of thing. Yeah. But as soon as I went in there, I started learning about trauma, about PTSD. My psychiatrist was amazing. Uh, She was uh, an Iranian-born woman who understood my world, really, you know, the Middle East. And uh, she saw through this journalist mask that I'd been wearing for so long. Yeah, just saw straight through me. And with her, I was able to start that whole process of, understanding PTSD and my trauma. And they had these group sessions, three group sessions a day where you'd get in a room, men and women, and just be talking about getting an education around PTSD or anger or anxiety or meaning in life values, Mm. these sorts of things. And you'd share people would go in the table and talk. And so my first group session, I'm sitting there, a bunch of veterans from the Vietnam War to Afghanistan, right? And I'm thinking to myself, "Shit, these guys are just like me." And that was a real revelation. It was like, "Wow, they they have the same symptoms as me. They've been a terrible to live with," and and I, I really felt, I really felt like I wasn't alone. And uh, I found that whole experience for me in Ward 17 was one where. I was able to learn some coping strategies, get that insight into PTSD, build up some knowledge and go home. And yeah, I went off the rails again. Go, I had to go back again a year later and then a year after that. But my last admission was four years ago. And, and so I was able to build up
2: yeah.
1: over those three admissions enough understanding, enough knowledge and, and do enough work there, enough therapy. To give me, to give myself a foundation now, where I don't think I'll need to go back. Mm. It was that. It was such a, a transformative experience because it's got they've got such a great team. It's a real. It's a multidisciplinary team, uh, and it's probably the best trauma facility in the country.
0: I guess it's. I guess that's amazing to hear. I love that. I guess it's a, a matter of learning how far you can stretch yourself. But the sticky thing about PTSD, and I always talk about it in stress, people don't know they're stressed when they're in the middle of mm, it. Correct. So that, of course, going back and going back, because until you start being able to really tune into, hey, what are the things that I can notice about me that aren't necessarily feelings? Because, oh, the stories I can tell myself, like I will never feel them until it's too late, until I'm beyond burnout. Um, what are some of the things that that told you, or that now tell you, hey, I might need to cope better here?
1: Well, so and this is one of the things that the men especially get uh, a lot of attention on in Ward Seventeen is anger, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, that's what breaks up a lot of relationships is anger and rage, and an angry man with PTSD is not someone that you want to be around especially a partner especially children and the the staff at ward 17 they would continually talk about the importance of deliberate self-awareness understanding mm. where you were what 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 was your what is your state of mind right now and deliberately checking in with yourself so that you've at least got a sense of your how you're interacting with the your loved ones. And mm. that takes a long time to to get to that point where you understand how it is your presence is affecting those around you. I gotta say, it's taken me years, and I'm still learning mm. about that. It it does take a long time. And I think that's this is one of the this is one of the real tragedies of PTSD, I think, because it does destroy relationships there's no question about it it does it does just just get another men.
0: stressful and isolating layer on what they're already dealing with
1: yeah that's right and 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 men do tend to to get angry mm. uh, it's it's just one of the it's one of the symptoms of ptsc and it just seems to manifest in men in a way that they're very hard to reach And, you know, my psychiatrist once said to me, you need to look at yourself in the mirror when you're angry. That is what you look like. That is what your wife has to look at when you're angry. It's not, Mm. she said, "It's you are not, you're an intimidating individual when you're angry, so.
0: How was the reality when you did that? How did that, I imagine you did that?
1: (laughs) Well, I I didn't have to. (laughs) I sort of knew, right, but it's something I think that as men, we have to be so aware of because, um, what I've learned, and I write about this in my book, is that men with PTSD, our nervous systems have been obviously affected by the trauma, the PTSD, right? And for most of us with PTSD, that's a lifelong thing, yeah. Um, and we can control, we can manage that, okay what a lot of us don't realize is that we have had an impact on the nervous systems of our partners, whatever their gender. Okay. And in the case of our female partners, we have had an impact on their nervous system. And in the case of my wife, I have had an impact on her nervous system. And so if there's a situation where I go into fight mode, she goes into flight mode
2: Mm.
1: and that's not good for a relationship. Mm. And I think for a lot of a lot of couples, it takes a lot of communication to resolve that issue. But in fact, the default way of dealing with it is just to not talk about it. And you can see where it ends up for a lot of couples, right? It just the relationship mm. breaks down, breaks up. And it's really, I can honestly say here we are 2022, end of 2022. I am only really now starting. To feel that I've got a handle on how my presence, when I get angry, can affect the house. I mean, seriously, it's taken this long yeah. to be fully aware, to be fully present when, and to be able to say, "You got to dial this down before you even dial it up." If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it is a long. It's a long process, um, but I know. You know, I've talked about triggers before and just understand, like recognizing it triggers, what, like even just recognizing when we are triggered into that mm. emotional state is one thing. I know myself, I used to get triggered by things and, and you know, slowly, slowly you get to a point where you're like, oh, I'm triggered right now. I'm just going to remove myself. But, you know, yep. even, but still not being able to, when you're in that, when you're in the middle of it, you're like, I'm being a right asshole right now. Yeah. But knowing it, I still can't be the person I wanna be. So the best I can do right now is go, just gonna duck on out of the situation for a bit. And I'm gonna come back and apologize and say, I know I was really aware of that. And this Mm. is what was going on. But knowing that like I'm, I'm a different person when I'm burnt out and tired and stressed and perhaps triggered by something and everybody is. But I think what we don't do well, is realize that it's our nervous system function Correct. and it puts us and it makes us behave and be a different person. Instead, we be that person and then upon reflection, again, we shame ourselves for it, which is just a, just a nasty little circle. Yeah, and, and
1: part of it is just how to articulate that at the time, right? Mm. To just say to some, the person opposite you, look, I'm just being triggered. I just need to go and... Uh, have a walk outside or take a breath of fresh air. It's very hard to actually speak <laughs> at, the, at that moment in time <laughs> in a non-threatening way sometimes, or in a, yeah. in, in a way that's just neutral. Uh, that's yeah. that's a challenge.
0: I guess for you, was it a case of having conversations outside of those moments so that you both knew? Like, how did yeah, you manage? Like, how did you navigate oh, that?
1: Gosh, a lot of times I just withdraw, or I would just I would just be this volcanic presence, right? And my family waiting for me to erupt, yeah. Uh, waiting for the, I, you know, it was like a, it was like there were landmines littered around the house, and they were trying not to step on them. That's yeah. what it was like. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah. I'm just, I am very, very lucky that my family is still together. My wife has stuck by me throughout that that time of the years of the. Of the moody, agitated, withdrawn male in in the house, mm. uh, and you know, so we we we're, we're trying to, I guess, with my book, help others to at least see that it's possible to to manage that, but that it's not easy.
0: Yeah. What a. With when did you start writing the book?
1: Uh, about six years ago, actually, just after my first. It was actually during my first psych ward admission i thought when i when i went in there when i went into ward 17 for the first time and i was talking to I, I i never actually intended to write a book but it was after meeting some of the coppers and the veterans i just felt that i could help uh by sharing my story i could help them by uh building awareness around around PTSD and, and trauma and if I shared my story it would it would help them in in some way and so that was sort of how it all that mm. was where the idea first came from then it just developed from there I guess I, I only thought I was going to have one psych ward admission end up having three uh so it, it just it call it been,
0: research for the book <laughs> yeah that's right
1: yeah yeah um and so it became it, the the journey got longer yeah if you like um and yeah, it's been, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of it. It's, I've had enough of it. I wanted just to get published and had a gutful.
0: <laughs> what are the, tell me three or, or a couple or as much as you like about, I guess, what you see as valuable concepts within the book. What do we find?
1: So, human connection is the mm. key to recovery, right? Uh, I can't stress that enough. Mm. Um, I'm not a fan. Of, I'm actually not a fan of the word recovery. I prefer healing because mm-hmm. I think recovery problem with recovery is that it's a bit like you can apply recovery to a physical injury. Someone can have full recovery from a broken arm or a hamstring injury or whatever. You're a boxer. So, you know, yeah. you can have full recovery from mm-hmm. a, that sort of thing. I think with mental illness and trauma recovery, is sort of not the right word. Healing's better, mm-hmm. but human connection is absolutely essential to that person's healing. And so I've seen probably 25 doctors, psychs, uh, clinicians, psychiatrists about my mental health over many years. And I know when they see me, when one of those individuals really sees me and when they don't. Mm -hmm. And the ones that have really helped me have opened their hearts to me and gone on this journey with me they're the ones that have connected with me and have been willing to really listen to my trauma my stories mm. they're the ones that have given me the guidance and the insight that I've needed and so they they connected to me as human beings as well as experts in their field and and I think that human connection is sometimes lacking in the overall world of therapy, if you like.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I think sometimes there's too much of a, a sort of a formula
0: yep.
1: to walk for therapy, a manual, if you like. I mean, the the person who played the probably the biggest role in in helping me heal from the deaths of my two staff was a spiritual care worker.
2: Mm.
1: Right. Uh, wasn't a psychiatrist, wasn't a psychologist. It was a spiritual care worker,
2: mm.
1: and she guided me through that this this healing process. Uh, and and so I think that that human connection has to be there. Uh, I think another something else that I've I've learned is that. Um, you know, people, it's was, it was like that, and then that this also comes back to the rapport with the person that you, you are sharing your story with, right? There has to be a connection, there has to be a rapport. If you don't have it, find someone else. And I know that's very, very difficult thing to say in this day and age, but it's almost impossible to get an appointment with a psychologist or a counselor, but it's worth trying to find that right person. Because understand. if that person is going to be your therapist for the rest of your life, then it's worth looking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was funny. The first time I was in Ward 17, people were saying, oh, I gave my psychologist the sack because he wouldn't listen to me about this or that or whatever. That relationship is really worth investing a lot in. And so mm. if you can find that right person, do it. Go on wait list, whatever you got to do. Um. Gosh, I, I guess the other thing, another thing as well, and it's going to sound a little bit lame maybe, but is self-care.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. Uh, and, you know, it might sound a bit weird coming from a guy who's, you know, got <laughs> tattoo, tattoos all over his arms and shoulders and and so on and who has been to war zones, but I am a huge proponent of self-care. Yeah. And what I learned in my on my third admission to ward 17. And this was, it took me three admissions to learn. This was that if I wanted my family to get the best of me, I had to look after myself and they weren't going to get the best of me if I didn't look after myself. And that meant exercise every morning. It meant trying to eat well. It meant getting enough sleep at night. It meant not drinking too much. It meant, listening to my body when i was exhausted so taking a rest during the day doing things that were i found enjoyable self-care and actually worked out a self self self-care plan years back and i have pretty much stuck to it ever since then so the idea that you have to that self-care is not an indulgence Mm. that that self-care is absolutely vital not just to you, but to all of those around I, you. Know, I sometimes hear this. You know, people talk about self care as if it's like it's people are. It's like a luxury that if they're lucky, they'll engage in a bit of self care. But it's it's so important.
0: I love love that you've highlighted that as a coach. Um, I coach a lot of people, and often they're mums. Mm. So getting them to Learn to prioritize themselves again in order to better look after their families and their situations yep. is hard. It's it's a hard mindset shift, but it's it's definitely a necessity.
1: It's like it's like that uh, people. If you're on an airplane, right, you've, you you got to put on your own oxygen mask first before you can put your the oxygen mask on your kids or something like that. It's the same. It's yeah. the same thing. But I think the other thing that that the other another big message, and and I talk about this a lot is that uh, organisations, businesses are not looking after the mental health of their people, They're not looking after the mental health of their staff. And I think it's I think it's really sad that in this day and age, with when we know so much about mental illness, we know yeah. so much about the toll that it exacts on on people's lives, on families. We know so much about the 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 damage that suicide mm. takes on 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 families and, and the wider community. We know all this, and yet employers are still treating their staff terribly. And the the researchers out there, the guidelines are out there for organizations on how to to do better when it comes to having a uh, a mentally healthy workplace. And yet nothing much is really happening. There's so much lip service. There's so much box ticking. I mean, the Black Dog Institute just put out a a major report about a year ago, big white paper, drawing together years and years of research. And they said they seen very little evidence that organisations have made any significant progress in terms of building more mentally healthy workplaces i think that's i just think that's unacceptable
0: yeah yeah So, i also think that as time flies as it is and does mm. we're heading very fast in the wrong direction when it comes to human connection especially the last couple of years because now looking after staff is allowing them to work at home, but that's further disconnection. It's disconnection from a working community. So instead of introducing a culture and a community where people can connect and and have a place, have another place in their life there, it's framed like flexibility and work life balance. And they're at home in that. Like I work from home a lot of the time, also work as a personal trainer, mainly because that's where I get out and get my connection. If I, didn't have that, and I was always at home in my home. Yeah, I've got what a great schedule, what a what great autonomy. But sometimes, Dean, I feel starved for connection. Mm. Like I'm like, I want where's I want to go into the office and raz everybody up, but there isn't yeah. everybody, and there isn't an office.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's like universities now after COVID have sort of kept a lot of the online lectures and tutorials mm. and stuff, right. Rather than having kids go back to classes where they've got to learn more and they're going to have more interaction and social interaction. Yeah. It just seems to be a cost saving way of doing things, which again is cutting down on the, the social connection, the human interaction that yeah. we have.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but I, I just, my, my plea is to for organizations is to business leaders, to managers, to really think deeply about what is the sort of legacy that you want to leave because at the moment work is making people ill. It's making people yeah. sick. And uh well,
0: do you have any suggestions on practices that or do you have or is there are there practices you see that are just box ticking that are clearly just box ticking? Yeah, yeah,
1: there's there's lots of box ticking going around uh having getting for example there are there are probably and I'm not exaggerating here there will be tens of thousands of mindfulness apps that are out there that organizations might be using in their to, to for their employees to do a bit of meditation or that sort of stuff uh there'll be the odd training course that someone will will run but that's not addressing the the problems of of burnout for example of excessive work hours of excessive job demands of bullies in the office, mm. for example, in a workplace. It's not addressing the the, the lack of... There is decreasing control over... Em, employees have decreasing control over their work these days. That's what this research from the Black Dog Institute said. So mm. you have... Em, employees are just getting squeezed tighter and t- tighter in the work that they do, and where we know real wages are not rising either so there's another constraint there yeah. and then you you throw in trauma on the job mm. be it sexual harassment sexual assault the trauma that first responders for example experience the trauma that school teachers experience mm. you know there's so much of it there the medical profession mm. and yet uh the employers just don't are not making mental health a pillar of their workplace values. And I I've, I just find that really, I think if workplaces were to look at their values, look at their principles and say, we're going to make the mental health of our staff one of our pillars, one of our guiding principles, I think that would be a good start because then if you have that one of, as one of your values, one of your principles, then what are you going to put in place to make that happen? Mm. Okay. I mean every every organisation wants to make the best product or deliver the best service, right? That's always there. How about making the mental health of your staff right up there as well? Look after them and you're going to the, the organisations that look after their staff are going to be are going to attract the best people. It's just I, it's just a no-brainer and the yeah. research the research shows it anyway.
0: I'm having half a chuckle here because last week I went to visit my friend and I said how's Alex her husband how's Alex how's Alex how's work and she said oh they're, they're very busy um, they've got this new thing where they are sticking these big yellow smiley faces they're hiding them throughout the warehouse and anyone that finds one gets a free hour off and I was like the messaging rail. a people are just running around looking for these bloody big yellow stickers B It reinforces. You get an hour to not have to do the the shit your work, the shit that you don't want to do. So you're frantically looking for this bloody smiley face. So you, one person, gets to go and have an extra hour off. Like, what about just giving everyone a, I don't know, have a bloody community lunch once a week and get them Mm. together and you know,
1: or ask people what it is they would like to do,
0: or like she said, pay them more.
1: Well, pay yeah. How about paying a fair wage? (laughs) Yeah.
0: But it, God, it made me laugh.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's just, I, I, just find it really discouraging to see, in this country, the, you know, we've got such a great country, and yet workers are ordinary people, ordinary workers, are always copping it in the neck, and it just, it aggravates me to see that when, the, when wages are stagnant mental health rate, mental illness is rising. The black dog says that. And if they're saying it, it is absolutely Mm, true. mm. Rates of mental illness among workers, especially young workers, is increasing. Organisational leaders need to be aware of that and they've got to do something about it.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Well, you've been amazing, Dean. Do you have anything else you want to promote or talk about or share or where can people find you and follow you?
1: Yeah, just the usual stuff. I'm I'm around on Facebook and uh LinkedIn and that sort of stuff. Uh you know, I got a book coming out, as I said, it's called Ward 17. A uh I sometimes forget this journalist's Odyssey to unlock the mystery of his trauma. That's what I've called it. My oh. publisher hasn't agreed to that full title yet, but I got it tattooed on my back <laughs> and uh <laughs> so,
2: set in stone. Yeah,
1: but I did say I said, Look, I'm not, I'm not this is not a uh a negotiating tactic. I just, I just like the, I just like the sound of it, and I promised myself a significant tattoo when I finished it. So, you know, if they want to change the title, I don't mind. But anyway, um, but I think uh, my final, if I can just make a final message, it really is. I, I think in Australia we've made great strides in in being more open about mental health and mental illness in in general. I, I think we've really done a great job reducing stigma, and I've I've travelled. All around the world, um, as a journalist and in the mental health space, and you know, I, I can I, I can compare Australia to other countries, and I, I think we compared to America, we're doing a fantastic job. For example, yeah, but I think it's in the workplace that we have to go far deeper and 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 harder to make employees to make workers feel more comfortable putting their hands up. That's we just haven't gone anywhere near that to that point yet. Because Mm -hmm. most staff still feel afraid to disclose they've got a mental health condition because they're worried they're going to lose their job or that they'll be discriminated against or prejudiced in some way, or they'll just be seen as weak. So this is where organisations need to step up and put in place the sort of policies and and procedures that will just, and and a climate that will make those workers feel safe to do so.
0: Mm. Yeah. I agree. Thank you so much for everything you've shared and everything that you're doing and get that book out, mate.
1: You're welcome, Tiffany. I've enjoyed our chat. It's been really fun.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You're a great
1: podcast host.
0: Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, everyone.